You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimal of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Man, I have been waiting for too long for this one. Today we are going on a little trip a few hours north of Las Vegas to Area 51. This episode features a whole lot of music from Roger Harvey and Roger Harvey and the High Lifers, one of my absolute best friends in the world and someone who inspires me to be myself and to be a better version of myself. Damn it. Uh, I think it goes without saying that I am not a journalist nor a historian, and I should only be trusted as far as I can be thrown, which is honestly probably a little bit further than an average man. I have two favors to ask. One is, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with someone you think would like it. That is the most common way people find out about it. At least, you know, that's what people tell me, how they found out about it. Um, I was going to ask you to rate it or whatever in your podcast app, but we don't We, we don't need to get carried away. All right. Let's go to Nevada. Area 51. Hell yes. It's super nice. Nice. Oh. <laughs> Talking about the bathroom. Yeah, right? We gotta get we gotta get tons of audio of the doors opening and closing like they do on, on their, like NPR podcasts. Wow, so what do you think? Cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So where are we? I was gonna say Lord knows. We're somewhere past Alamo, Nevada. On our way to Crystal Springs. Yeah. To go see the extraterrestrials on. I had no idea how to start this podcast. As I'm sure you've probably seen, the Pentagon, more specifically the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, released a preliminary report, a nine-page document outlining a recent study of UFO or UAP phenomena. Out of the 144 incidences they studied, 143 remained, um, you know, unidentified. And most of them actually had taken place in the last two years uh, instead of like the full length of the study. But we're going to talk about that a little bit later. You see, I've been independently researching the UFO phenomena, uh, now commonly referred to as the UAP, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, for over 20 years. I can't imagine beginning to unpack the last 70 years of UAP history. In fact, you know, potentially thousands of years of UFO history. So we're going to tell you a little story about the journey my producer and I took to one of the most controversial and storied UAP hotspots in the world, my producer, of course, is my fiance Beth Ann, and the hotspot is Area 51. I reached out to some friends for some help on this one, and the great Joe Godino came up with the idea to start the episode with some commentary from May of 2021 by the 44th President of the United States, Barack Obama. When it, when it comes to aliens, uh, there's some things I just can't tell you uh, on air. But what what is true, uh, and I'm, I'm actually being serious here, is, is that uh, there are... Uh, there's footage and records of objects in the skies that we 
don't know exactly what they are. We can't explain uh, how they moved, their trajectory. Uh, they, they did not have um, an easily explainable pattern. So there you have the former leader of the free world saying that we have objects that we cannot identify flying around in the sky. He's joined by a chorus of current and former members of government, including other presidents, astronauts, cosmonauts, pilots, intelligence agency members, senators and congresspeople, journalists, defense contractors, police officers, academics, nuclear physicists, and countless others in countries outside of the United States. Uh, As I'm recording this, the number one article at Der Spiegel in Germany reads, uh, UFO Octon des Pentagon, alarm am Himmel, or UFO files from the Pentagon, alert in the sky. Thank you, Catcher, for the translation. The French National Aeronautical and Astronautical Association released their own eight-year report on Friday. The BBC headline today is, U.S. has no explanation for sightings. The Wall Street Journal says, UFO report cites unidentified aerial phenomena that would defy worldly explanation. Uh, The New York Times says U.S. has no explanation for unidentified objects and stops short of ruling out aliens. It's uh, this more recent mainstream attention, beginning with a landmark article in 2017 in the New York Times by Helene Cooper, Ralph Blumenthal, and Leslie Keen that led us out into the desert on our mission to Area 51. So that brings us to Las Vegas. We were there to celebrate the wedding of two of our best friends, Eric and Estelle. The day before the king of rock and roll himself gave the ceremony, Beth Ann begrudgingly agreed to come on uh, quite an excursion with me into the desert. So it starts in the lobby of the Bellagio on the Las Vegas Strip. I imagine the Bellagio is named for the northern Italian city that sits on Lake Como near the Swiss border called Bellagio. It's certainly styled that way, kind of a just beige and, and reddish beige, vaguely European terracotta kind of columns and stuff everywhere. It's, it's pretty nice, I'm not going to lie. The ceiling of the lobby is covered in massive glass sculptures of colorful flowers. There's just hundreds of them. It's, uh, it's gorgeous. At the back of the lobby, there's a bar where a pianist plays lounge versions of popular songs. However, there's also an enormous, trippy, temporary forest display full of gigantic mushrooms, which you can get in line to, to walk through, which is extra funny if you know me the las vegas strip around COVID times is even more bizarre than it normally is this time there are plexiglass dividers separating each of the players at card tables much like you'd see at the cash register in philadelphia people pulling down their masks to smoke and drink and gamble whether it's 6 a.m or 6 p.m or any other time so we meet in the lobby, and then we make our way over to the car rental office in the Bellagio, which is just to the left of the giant fountains out front, made famous in the Ocean's Eleven movies and, I think, Vegas Vacation, etc. Now, next time we do an episode like this, I'm going to ask people if I can record more. Uh, I was being really bashful, and there were a couple of characters I really wish I got to share with you. The rental agent was definitely one of them. He's a pretty funny guy. Uh, now, they have Teslas and convertibles and things like that. I mean, it's a casino in Las Vegas. And we went for your standard sedan. He asked where we were going, and I told him Area 51. He kind of laughed, and he really honestly didn't seem very surprised. I imagine it was probably not the, you know, not the wildest thing that he would see or hear that day in the, in the car rental office of the Bellagio. He actually told us that we needed an SUV because of how much off-roading would be involved. So he probably also weren't the first people that came in to rent a car to go to Area 51. And he gave us one with less than 100 miles on it for the same price as we would have paid for the sedan. 
I signed it and added the lost damage waiver, which is I always add the lost damage waiver, at least ever since my brother's wedding. If you know, if you were there, you know. <laughs> uh, so we hopped in and we started driving north. I've had an interesting relationship with Las Vegas. The first time we ever played there uh, was on our first West Coast tour with Broadway Calls. We played two shows in one day. So the first show was our was our all-ages show. We played a show in the afternoon at a house in the desert with no plumbing. Pretty sure it was a generator-powered show. There was no, no regular power. They had built a ramp in the mini ramp, a skateboarding half pipe in the living room. And I remember this one guy was just just rubbing us wrong. That's a, I remember mostly from it. Oh, also, there were a bunch of military jets just blasting overhead the entire time. Some in formation, some not. It was, it was, it was a wild scene to be out there in the, in the desert playing this house show. But then at nighttime, we played a 21-plus show on the absolute opposite end of the spectrum with the Voodoo Glow Skulls in the venue room of the Penthouse Club, which is a strip club ostensibly owned or affiliated with Penthouse Magazine. But I don't actually know that, and I, and I didn't Google it. It was hilarious. Uh, it was one of the more unique shows that we, we ever played. We stayed in Motel 6, like right off of one of the strips, and had an absolutely incredible time. We didn't have that much money, but we still kind of split up what we had and, and you know played slot machines and shit like that. I believe Josh from Broadway Calls actually won a bunch of money in a slot machine, and he ended up buying all of us uh, Waffle House either that night or the next morning, which was, which was great. In the years to come, we played a bunch of not-so-great shows, but as we met more and more people from the area and saw more of the city, I really started to see how special a place it is and how much more there is to the city and its culture than just like the hangover movies. Now I absolutely love to play in Las Vegas, and I love to visit. Oh, I do have to throw out a side note that on stage a couple of years ago, I said that at first I didn't like Las Vegas, but that I was learning to love it more and more each time that we came back and we were meeting more people. And a, it was just like a show that was at like 2 o'clock in the morning as part of punk rock bowling. And a music journalist from the area wildly misquoted me and made it seem like we were talking shit on Vegas and thus, you know, wronging the punk community there. But that was not the case. So I got most of the information and plan for the trip from some guy's comment on TripAdvisor, which I can't find the comment anymore, but he, it's fantastic. He laid out markers and put in some longitude, latitude signs and drive times and some warnings and some advice. There are a bunch of tours that you can take, and I'm sure that one day I will take a Area 51 tour from Las Vegas when COVID is fully in the rearview mirror. So let's talk a bit about Area 51. But first, the extraterrestrial highway. All right, so here we are. What, like 90 miles outside of uh, Las Vegas? Maybe a little further than that. How long have you dreamed of this moment? I've been dreaming of this moment forever. We only have one microphone, so I'm going to just do my best <laughs> to swing it back and forth between us. But we are here uh, at the junction of 318 and 375 at the extraterrestrial highway sign. I'm so fucking stoked. Today we... Well, not today, but we're going to tell the story of Area 51. What do you... When you think... When you hear Area 51, what do you, what do you think it is? What do you think of it? Spooky shit. <laughs> Actually, my heart's racing right now. I think it's because of what's in the air. Because we're so close? Yeah. And there's horses right behind us, too. There are horses right behind us. It is kind of not nearly as remote. Well, this section that we're at is not nearly as remote as I thought it was going to be. There's some cool oases. Oasises. Oasises. And some creepy-looking motels. There's some extremely... <laughs> I've been touring for 15 years, and I have not seen motels this creepy. This is next-level gas station hotels. I'm at least glad there's trees. 
yeah, there are some really cool trees. We are parked in the shade. Uh, we are gonna check out this sign. We're gonna hit the Alien Research Center. We're gonna hit the little alien, get some food, and I think we're gonna try to drive down the road to see the gate. What do you think about that? Uh, sounds great. I'm just here for the food. Will you be a human <laughs> shield for me if the guards shoot at us? Absolutely not. Yeah, no, I'll be your human shield. It'll be cool. <laughs> Alright, well, first up, let's go. Now, I need to level with you guys and come out and say that personally, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to UFOs, I think Area 51 is a bit of a red herring. There's some serious, serious evidence and testimony from other areas and incidences, specific ones, like anything from Rendlesham Forest to nuclear weapons deactivation uh, that coincided with close sightings of UFOs that are documented and testified before in different press conferences and in front of Congress. Some of these things, to me, hit so much harder than the Area 51 story for the most part. However, it's still a huge story, and uh, the place is just totally burned into our minds from pop culture, from video games to movies, and I think it's a, a great thing to talk about, so, so let's talk about it. My favorite book I've read about Area 51 is called Area 51 by Annie Jacobson, a, an investigative journalist. And I highly recommend it. It's a, a lot of information that I've, that I've written down here. It came directly from the book and from other online sources. Area 51 is inside the largest government-controlled patch of land in the country, the Nevada Test and Training Site. It's, it's nearly 5,000 square miles. It is just under the size of Connecticut, the entire U.S. state of Connecticut. So this is one... U.S.-controlled parcel of land, and Area 51 is one section inside of this test and training site. Now, within that is a 1,000-square-foot or so test site where we blew up somewhere near 1,000 nuclear weapons above and below ground <laughs> over the years, which seems to be you know such a wild absurdity. Now, it's important to remember that the existence of Area 51, the facility inside the test and training site, was kept a complete secret until 2013. It was listed as Area 51 on some old Atomic Energy Commission maps. Um, one of the few times the name was not redacted in government documents and appears to have been an accident. It became popular in the 1980s after Bob Lazar, a man whom allegedly, you know, he alleged to work there, came forward to a Las Vegas TV station. And that story is just bonkers. We're going we're gonna to talk a bit about that later. The CIA publicly acknowledged the existence of the base for the first time on June 25th, 2013, following a Freedom of Information Act request that was actually filed in 2005. And at the same time, they declassified a bunch of documents detailing the history and the purpose of Area 51, officially at least. So we know basically is that in 1955, the CIA began to use the runway that was there and the facility to work on the U-2 spy plane. So it was a runway and it hadn't been in service since World War II. They did use it uh, then which, you know, had ended in 1945. So then the CIA comes back in 1955, starts testing the U-2 spy plane there. They then used the facility to develop the Oxcart spy plane, and then eventually the F-117 Nighthawk, which is the stealth fighter, you know, the triangular-looking one with the X kind of tail fins on it. Uh, the facility has also been referred to as Dreamland, uh, which, you, you know, it's nor typically referred to in UFO lore as Dreamland, and Paradise Ranch. The Air Force... Public Relations has also referred to the facility as, quote, an operating location near Groom Dry Lake. Nice. Uh, you can't go there. You cannot go. Ne you can go near the back gate like we did. You can also hike to the top of Tickaboo Peak, which is 26 miles east of Area 51. And then you can use high-powered binoculars to maybe see some things moving around at nighttime, possibly a light come on or come off. But, you know, it's not guaranteed and it's really hard to get there. And it's also at the moment unclear if the perimeter has actually been moved further away from there. 
so basically, we're working with a giant piece of land the size of Connecticut, where the government secretly is blowing up nuclear weapons, and then a, a section inside of that where you have complete secrecy and unacknowledgement by the government or any of the groups within the government for a long time, where they're just spending an enormous amount of money and all kinds of wild secret shit that we still don't know about. To the Alien Research Center. All right. Well, we drove about. What would you say? Two minutes. No. Two minutes west on three seventy-five, and now we are at the Earth Station Area Fifty-One Alien Research Center, which is an airplane hangar with a twenty-foot silver gray alien out front of it. Uh, it says it's Area Fifty-One Base Camp. Be right there. We can get a map for directions to get to the gate, Area 51. And I just noticed there's about 150 cows in the front. <laughs> <laughs> Did not notice that. <laughs> and it's good to see other rental cars here as well. What are your first impressions of the uh, Alien Research Center? This is extremely your shit and extremely not my shit, but I'm here for you. I can't wait to go check it out. Maybe we could interview somebody. What do you think? Uh, that's going to be my job to try to get someone to interview. You're right? a lot more approachable <laughs> and and journalistically inclined. We'll see. <laughs> All right, let's check this place out. Now, we can't talk about Area 51 without talking about Bob Lazar. Talk about the, uh, the third rail of uh, ufology or ufology. Some people hate Bob Lazar. Some people take his word as, as total gospel. Um, when it comes to Lazar, I'll say that my mind is not fully made up. As with many things in this life, the older I get and the more I learn about certain subjects, the less I find I actually know about them. And that's definitely in the case of, of Bob Lazar. I'll do my best to differentiate between the alleged and the proven, but forgive me where I slipped during this. Either way, it's, it's an incredible story. I think it's a uniquely, a uniquely American story as well. So we can thank Bob Lazar for the modern fascination of Area 51 and for its, its intermingling of the larger UFO narrative. In 1982, Bob Lazar claimed to be working at the Los Alamos Laboratory. It's the laboratory that produced the first atomic bombs used during World War II and home of the primary nuclear weapons research facility in the United States. I say claimed because the laboratory says that he never worked there, although multiple newspapers at the time have articles listing him as working there, and journalists found a telephone directory from the lab from 1982 listing a Robert Lazar. The story goes that he met Edward Teller, whom you may know as the father of the hydrogen bomb from the uh, Manhattan Project. He saw Teller reading a newspaper with a front-page story featuring Lazar uh, that was highlighting a car that Lazar had built in his garage, uh, mounting a jet engine on it. So he, he was a kind of non-traditional scientist that built a jet engine car. And he approached Teller, who was sitting in the lecture hall at Los Alamos, and said, Hey, that's me. And I think he... Uh, you know, struck a chord. Now, this either impressed Teller or at least, you know, left a mark. Years later, after moving to Las Vegas and experiencing several life setbacks, Lazar claims to have reached out to Teller looking for an engineering job. Teller hooked him up with a job with a defense contractor called EG&G that just so happened to be working out of Area 51. EG&G could be a whole separate podcast. There's some, there's some dark shit there. <laughs> Again, I, I can't stress enough how wild and controversial Bob Lazar's story is, so I'm just telling you his story, and I encourage you to check it out yourself. You can watch old interviews from the 80s. You can read the, the skeptical writings of Stanton Friedman, a nuclear physicist and one of the most famous UFO researchers of all time. He, he can't stand Lazar. He's like, fuck Lazar. I don't think he said fuck Lazar, but he probably did. 
Lazar also has a uh, wild and long interview on the Joe Rogan podcast, as well as interviews with Larry King. I mean, he's the subject of, of several documentaries and books. There's plenty of information out there to, to check on him, but yeah. Okay, so Teller gets Lazar this job, and Lazar goes through the hoops of getting on an unmarked, curtained airplane and riding a blacked-out bus that ends up in Area 51. He says he was brought to a bunch of hangars that were built into the side of the mountain, a little bit further away from Area 51, like a half-hour drive, allegedly called S-4, which stands for Site 4 or Sector 4. After signing a bunch of documents agreeing to wiretaps and of his home phone and, and the likes and waiving his constitutional rights, he says they showed him what appeared to be a flying saucer in one of the hangars. They told him, look, you're going to help us figure out how these things work. We're going to bring you up here. You know, you don't get information on either side of it. We're going to do these little tasks that you'll have to work on. And that's, you know, I mean, that's that's what he did. That's a, a super intense story, and it gets even crazier. He claims that the objects had seats uh, for people inside of them and that they were, you know, sized to fit a child. He worked on them sometimes 10 days in a row, sometimes only once a week, uh, going back and forth. He's not telling his best friend or his wife what's going on. He's just working on these you know, UFOs or UFO replication vehicles or whatever. So th- the turning point for him came sometime much later when he was being escorted down a hallway. He says that two armed guards were walking him down a hallway from one section of the S4 to another, and he claims to have looked into a room and saw a small humanoid being standing between two men. He feels it could be an alien or could have been a child or, or, or quote to quote, a million different things. After this, he felt that he couldn't keep it a secret anymore that he was working on this stuff. He thought it was too important to humanity. There were too many questions about what they were doing to, you know, these other people or beings or whatever. So he decides he's going to show his wife and some of his friends, including the pilot and researcher John Lear, son of the guy who invented the Learjet, what's been going on. So he knows a test flight schedule, so they get some high-powered binoculars and imaging equipment, and they drive down 375, the very road that we are on in this part of the podcast. They drive up into the mountains where they can oversee one of the sections of where they're doing test flights, and sure enough, they see lights performing very strange maneuvers in the skies. They do this a few times, and then on the third time, they get a little get a little uh, comfortable, a little little cocky, and they get busted by security guards. Lazar goes back into work the next day anyway, and they fire him clearly, and then they put him on a bus or a helicopter to a nearby Air Force base where they threatened him, and they expose they show him transcripts of his home telephone where his wife is clearly having an affair with someone else. You know, and he's just at this point, he's like, fuck this, this sucks. He claims a bunch of things happened to him, like his tire got shot out, he's being harassed. So he's like, all right, fuck this, I'm going public. And he reaches out to uh, local journalist George Knapp. Then the story goes global. Uh, Not only does the story go global, but it gets even more murky and convoluted. And from the perception of us as outsiders, I'd say it gets crazy and and unbelievable, even if it wasn't before. He claims that he went to MIT. They claim he didn't. He claims he smuggled out an element, element 115, which wasn't synthesized until the 2000s, but the isotope of the one that they synthesized was unstable, and he claims to have the stabilized isotope version of element 115, but he hasn't shared it. He was arrested for unrelated charges involving some kind of prostitution situation years later and has what I would describe as a, as a wild-ass life. To his credit, his story really hasn't changed since he came out with it. Bob Lazar now runs a scientific chemical and supply company called United Nuclear, 
and is to this day a huge source of fascination and derision. Like I mentioned before, there are many places to learn about Bob Lazar, and the story is crazy. Uh, uh, there's really no way I can prove it without revealing my identity and getting myself into more trouble than I have already. Exactly what's going on up there? Well, there's several, uh, actually nine uh, flying saucers, flying discs, uh, that are out there of extraterrestrial origin and uh, they're basically being dismantled. Uh, some are, well, in various stages of, of completion, built from other parts, and they're being test flown and uh, uh, basically just analyzed. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian McKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. All right, well, we just left the Alien Research Center, and it got a lot weirder a little bit. Uh, the terrain has changed. You can see way far up on the road. There's been no cars. Uh, it's real hazy, like it is in so many desert movies. The sunlight, there's no shade anywhere for anyone or anything. Um, I don't think, what do you think, Bethan? But I don't think that they do much research at the, uh, at the Alien Research Center. What do you, what do you think? Just sell honey, tequila, and other bad uh, alien merchandise. Yeah, they had some. They had Christmas lights that were UFOs and Bigfoot, uh, but they weren't for sale. They were just on a Christmas tree. We got some magnets for some friends that are that are that are into it. Um, she did give me the directions though on how to get to the gate, so the back gate, I guess, of one section of the testing area or whatever of Area 51. Uh, so we're gonna go find that dirt road where she said it was. We're gonna take it. Um, however far into the mountains that we need to go and she said that they will come to a sign that says stop and that if we go past the sign it will not be our lucky day and that the military police will give us shit i don't know take our cameras i don't know what they'll do i'm just speculating but it will be i'm very excited i'm excited to go and uh not trespass on area 51 but get as close as we as we could I'm excited you bought me a beer. It's making it a little bit more bearable. Just kidding. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you got to smooth things over. <laughs> I've dragged you out into the absolute middle of nowhere to do a story that we haven't fully researched yet about Area 51. If I see an alien, then it'll be worth it. So why now? Why is Barack Obama and every major newspaper across the whole political spectrum talking about UFOs? Why are people posting memes again about UFOs? Well, I mentioned before that unpacking 70 years of documented UFO phenomena and the cloudy drama that is the government's handling of the phenomena is an enormous task, something that I just can't do. So here's the deal. I can't fully lay out the historical and socio-political context of the current situation. I'm not asking you to trust me that my take is correct, but I am going to go out on a limb and uh, asking you to trust me that it is a much more complicated and nuanced history than, than you probably know, than I probably know. I recommend reading an article from the May 10th issue of The New Yorker called How the Pentagon Started Taking UFOs Seriously by a journalist named Gideon Lewis Krauss. This is the best article-length breakdowns of the current situation that I've seen. 
So this one, we're going to take it back to 2007. While we were doing our first tour down to Florida, where we played uh, the Fest as a last-minute addition with the Holy Mess, uh, their people were busy in Nevada. It's a, it's a bumpy ride with a few new names. we got a couple senators, a wild-ass billionaire, shape-shifting Navajo witches, and of course, Tom DeLong, because why not? So a man named Robert Bigelow made a fortune in real estate in Nevada and in the Southwest. He also founded a company called Bigelow Aerospace. Now, you may know him for founding NIDS, or the National Institute for Discovery Science, which is a kind of private X-Files Ghostbusters situation that did highbrow paranormal investigations. He bought Skinwalker Ranch in Utah. Shout out to Justin Yates, who just visited there with his dad last week and actually took a bizarre and unexplained photograph himself. So in Navajo culture, a skinwalker is a type of harmful witch who has the ability to turn into, possess, or disguise themselves as an animal. I'm not even going to begin to dive into Skinwalker Ranch. That's definitely for a whole other podcast. But I highly recommend it, and there's a lot of resources out there to, to learn about what the people who lived there claim and just about everything that happened with Bigelow. It's, it's fucking wild. But just know that Robert Bigelow, billionaire guy, into the paranormal. So this unnamed official in the Defense Intelligence Agency reaches out to Bigelow about some of the things that Bigelow's doing, and Bigelow puts this guy in touch with none other than the Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid. Bigelow and Harry Reid are some kind of pals from Nevada. You know, I guess billionaires hang out with senators. That is old tale as old as time. Uh, Senator Reid had a previous interest in UAP. After meeting with the DIA official, Harry Reid then reaches out to Senator Ted Stevens of Alaska. Ted Stevens had his own experience with the UFO as a pilot in World War II. He also reached out to Senator Daniel Inouye, another World War II veteran and Medal of Honor recipient. So a quick recap. Unnamed official reaches out to billionaire Bigelow. Bigelow puts them in touch with the Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid. Harry Reid partners up with two other senators, and then these guys slip a $22 million rider into the 2008 Supplemental Appropriations Bill for a new program to study UFOs. Pentagon's pissed. They don't want to deal with it. They're like, this is if this gets out, it's going to look bad. We don't want to be doing this for whatever the reasons are. Uh, so, you know, so the program called the Advanced Aerospace Weapons System Applications Program <laughs> starts taking government bids. And of course, the only company to bid is a subsidiary of Bigelow Aerospace. So now enter a figure that is central to the current UFO resurgence, one Luis Elizondo. To quote from Mr. Lewis Krause's New Yorker article directly, in 2008, Louis Elizondo, a longtime counterintelligence officer working in the office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, was visited by two people who asked him what he thought about UFOs. He replied that he did not think about them, which was apparently the correct answer, and he was asked to join. So the program looks into some skinwalker stuff and some UFO activity, and they look into you know some of the kinds of technologies that UFOs might utilize. Uh, Senator Reid tried to get the program what's called Restricted Special Access Program status, and the Defense Department denied it, so they weren't able to access a lot of the kind of like higher-level clearance things that they would have if they had received it. The program did issue a report, some of which was leaked to a journalist named Tim McMillan. Then the program seems to have kind of floundered, especially without that access. So this is when Luis Elizondo takes over the program and turns it into the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP. ATIP is uh, really central to the current uh, narrative regarding UFOs, and you'll probably see it written down a lot, and you'll certainly hear about it a lot in different UFO podcasts and documentaries that have come out since then. So ATIP is where we start. This is where we start cooking with gas. This is an inter-Pentagon organization now, and this group investigates what is known as the Nimitz Encounter. 
going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Look at that thing, dude. That's not our LNS though, is it? It's not. That is an LNS, dude. Well, if there's like another thing, it's rotating. So the Nimitz encounter, this is the Tic Tac UFO and the black and white picture that you see everywhere. For an incredible take on the Nimitz encounter, I would listen to David Fravor, one of the pilots, Commander David Fravor, on Lex Friedman's podcast. They talk for like three and a half hours, gets a little bit higher brow and technical, but it's, it's fucking cool. He's also one of the pilots on the recent 60 Minutes expose. So this is, this is the, the, the banger here. This is the single. In November of 2004, the USS Nimitz off the coast of San Diego started catching these objects blasting around on, on radar. They would be as high as 80,000 feet, and they'd shoot down to ocean level. Um, after a few days, they send Commander David Fravor on an intercept mission in an F-18 Super Hornet. Now, this guy's no joke. He graduated from the Top Gun Elite Fighter Pilot School, R.I.P. Goose, and he was the commander of the Black Aces Squadron. So he's flying his F-18 Hornet, and when he gets close to the radar location where they were reporting these objects, he looks down and he sees like a disruption on the ocean's surface, like, uh, you know, as if something is close to the surface or things are going in and out. And then there's a 40-foot-long object shaped like a Tic Tac. It was bouncing around with no visible exhaust or rotors or anything like that. He descended to chase the object, and it blasted off at a high speed. So after he gets back to the, the aircraft carrier, they send another pilot out who has a plane equipped with some advanced imaging equipment on it. This is the uh, FLIR-1 video and picture. It's like a tic-tac-shaped object kind of tumbling through the screen w- surrounded by two lines that are, look like a targeting system. You've seen it on the front cover of the New York Times and, and a bunch of other places. So this is a famous case where the videos were leaked and then they were confirmed as being official by the Pentagon, you know, as being unidentified objects. It's a, a, a really kind of a big deal. So Luis Elizondo runs this program, ATEP, where they're investigating things like the Nimitz encounter for several years. So then we fast forward to 2017, where the groundbreaking New York Times article comes out. In October of 2017, Lou Elizondo resigns from the program and then through a retired CIA officer and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, he reaches out to investigative journalist Leslie Keene. They meet up and they show her documents from ATIP and she hits up the New York Times and they all come together and they're like, hey, we got to get this article out fast. They're going to give us this to do it. And in two months, the article comes out in December. It, It reads as Glowing Auras and Black Money, the Pentagon's Mysterious UFO Program. By Helene Cooper, Ralph Blumenthal, and Leslie Keene. Since then, a flurry of videos have been leaked and confirmed by the Pentagon. All kinds of people have come forward. And in 2019, the Navy actually changed its official guidelines for pilots, now encouraging them to report these instances, whereas before they were either, you know, kind of unofficially, socially discouraged for them. Then in 2020, Senator Marco Rubio added something into the Intelligence Authorization Act, requesting a detailed report with a 180-day timeline, which brought us to last Friday, June 25th, 2021. All right, so it is bumpy, extremely bumpy. Uh, on the GPS, we can see a big grayed out line. Uh, we've been on not a road, just as Groom Lake Road. Now we're coming up to uh, uh, the Air Force Base. We can see some shiny shit up ahead. Is that like a car? I don't know. I'm, my stomach is in knots. <laughs> Yeah, this is cool. Uh, we're pulling up. Looks like there's a car there. I don't know if it's military personnel or maybe somebody be, being cheeky like us. But we did just pass some of the coolest, weird, like, hollowed-out caves 
in the side of a big giant desert mountain, which was just, this entire thing is just really fucking creepy, and I, I really like it. Um, it looks like there's some instrumentation of some kind of weird shit up on top of the hill, um, and some concrete kind of stuff going on. So there is a car in front of us. We're coming up now, what's that, like 100 yards away? Yeah. So let's see what gonna happen. Should we just leave this rolling while we do it? Yeah, let's do it. Oh wow, there's the there's a pickup truck with men on the top of the hill. I don't see it. Yeah, see it up there? This guy standing next to the pickup yeah. truck? Yeah. Whoa. Wait, this might be it? And then here it looks like there's a car that did the same thing that we did. We're gonna read the warning sign. And then we'll see what it says. What does it say? If you are considering trespassing on the Nevada Test and Training Range boundary, please consider the following consequences. You will be required to pay a $1,000 fine. You will have your car towed at your expense. You will have your car impounded at your expense. You will be brought to Heiko, Nevada to be processed. Once released, you will be responsible for transportation to your next desired travel location. Oh, that doesn't sound fun at all. No, I, uh... Uh, And that, because it's kind of weird how that truck's just kind of menacingly looking at us. I don't know if it's military or contractors or whatever, but... I'm gonna grab a pick real quick, and then we just spin this bad boy around. How? Huh? What do you think about that? You sure? Yeah. Here, hold on. Come on, let's wait. So we made it. Yeah. We Yay! Did. All right. Do it. Don't get arrested. Am I like locked in? Make sure you get outside. Oh. I got it. You got the door open. He's taking a pick of the sign that I just read to you. He's very close to the car. Likely so he doesn't get either taken back to his home planet or maybe just not get arrested on this planet. <laughs> that was exhilarating. Are they moving? Hey, look, you can see the gate. All right, whatever, we'll turn around. Do you think we're being watched on like a predator drone? <laughs> Definitely. Just like Homeland. That's some kind of thermal imaging satellite. Oh man, the car's just... Wow, that is kind of creepy. Another guy's just got out of the passenger seat, and I think he got back in. You think they just do that to fuck with people all day? Is there... Yeah. They're probably like the lowest uh, grade people at this base. Yeah, we'll send you out to the fake gate that we set up so that people could come see it, and then uh, to keep themselves amused, they just get in and out of the truck and watch people speed off into the distance. Well, that was fun as hell. We did it. Yeah. Now we're going to go to the little alien. Yeah, I need food. Hey, so we drove back through the gravel and sand towards the paved road. It was some real hills have eyes shit for sure. Uh, You see, they let cattle graze here, just completely out in the open for miles and miles. It's seriously breathtaking scenery. For UFO nerds, we, on our way out, when we had no GPS, we actually used the miles of open sight to find the road and ended up stumbling upon the famous black mailbox. Took, got out, took a picture. So the report that came out on Friday is the preliminary unclassified report attached to a much longer classified report. It's only nine pages, but it has a couple of big takeaways, at least in my opinion, and there's people who know much more about this than me writing great things about it. So just a quick takeaway. Now, the report states that stigma is one of the reasons that they were not able to collect enough good data. They cited that um, cultural influence and the social stigma around it prevented people from reporting. 
the report holds a small amount of data that appear to show UAP demonstrating acceleration or a degree of signature management, both um, intelligent aspects of, of a moving object. Now, signature management would be like camouflaging or some type of signal jamming. A majority of the 144 cases involved multiple sensors, so not just someone seeing it or just some single radar blip. The UAPTF has 11 reports of documented instances in which pilots reported near misses with a UAP. In a small number of cases, military aircraft systems processed radio frequency energy associated with UAP sightings. And, of course, they concluded that many of these are physical objects. And then we go to the little alien. All right, pulling into Rachel, Nevada. In about a quarter of oh. a mile, left <laughs> turn onto Old Mill Street. Thank you, GPS. Um, I don't know. Does this count as a as a town? It's just trailers, but I'm not gonna judge. You know, fuck. Left you. turn ahead onto. Yeah, I'm not gonna judge for sure. Um, but we did just see a cow that was blasted. Big old steer got blasted by a car. It was kind of weird. Uh, fucking strange. Now we're pulling right into the little alien where there's a bunch of weirdos like us parked out front. Everyone's cars are all covered in dust because they just did the exact same thing that we did. There's a UFO on it. And there's a UFO on a on an old tow truck. So we're going to park and see what's going on. What do you think? I have to pee, so I'm very grateful for Rachel Nevada. You rule. Here we go. The first and only child to be born in this valley was Rachel Jones. Her father delivered her in their mobile home on February 15th, 1978. The town, then on the upswing, uh, and Rachel's birth struck everyone as an important event, so they decided to change the name of the town to Rachel. Pulling up to the little alien was such a rush. I've been wanting to go there for so many years. That was everything I wanted. There was a bunch of traveler, hippie kind of people out front. Not Instagram van dweller, you know, hashtag hashtag van dweller people. Definitely not bands and not people, you know, like looking for work, but just kind of ambiguous, glassy-eyed traveler people. The first guy I met, a shoeless kind of Grateful Dead fan-looking guy named Jim, he asked me where I was from and I told him Philadelphia. He told me he took a train there in the late 80s from where, I have no idea, to see Van Halen. And he met a lady, and he ended up sticking around for a couple of months. We went inside of the bar, which was a concrete structure with a giant alien painted on the side of it. You see, this is the shit that got me into this in the first place. Ever since I picked up some book at the library full of Bigfoot and UFO stories when I was a little kid, I've just been completely hooked. I'm older and more serious now and cranky, but you know it will always be fun for me to let go and, and have a lot of fun with this. Inside the diner was like a million burger and burrito joints I've seen in years on the road. It was furnished like a VFW with fundraising jars for people they know and schedule of local events. There was a bunch of celebrity visitors on the walls and tons of just fantastic UFO memorabilia for sale from shot glasses to alien sunglasses to, you know, famous books and kind of more expensive things under glass. There were also a bunch of photos of soldiers and pilots in different aircraft, and I imagine they've had their fair share come through being so close to a massive military installation or area the size of Connecticut. So we, uh, so we sat at the bar and we were chatting up a little bit. There was a family in the back that was eating lunch. We got some fries, maybe some burgers. I don't, I don't remember. It was some grill food for sure. I drank a Guinness. I didn't want to ask if I could turn the recorder on. We, we, we really just wanted to enjoy it. And I'm glad that we did it. I, I wish I turned the recorder on to talk to our boy Jim outside and some of the other people, but I'll just have to remember to do that next time. 
Besides the giant UFO sculpture hanging from the back of a 1960s rusted and seemingly inoperable tow truck, there's also kind of an impressive concrete sculpture. It's like a, a pylon of sorts that just is blazoned ID4, and there's a small plaque up in front of it, and it reads, On the 18th day of April, A.D. 1996, 20th Century Fox hereby dedicates this time capsule and beacon for visitors from distant stars to the state of Nevada and the extraterrestrial highway. This time capsule will serve as a beacon to be opened in the year A.D. 2050, by which time interplanetary travelers shall be regular guests of our planet Earth. Governor Bob Miller of the state of Nevada, 20th Century Fox Film Corporation, the filmmakers and cast of Independence Day. So if we're not all underwater, I will see you on April 18th, 2050. So I wanted to wrap it up with a question my dear friend Corey Cerisi asked. I called up and asked what I should put in the episode, and he said he just wanted to know if it's real. I asked him what it is, and we did a bit of rambling where we talked back and forth, you know, well, what if it's extraterrestrial aliens? What if it's a breakaway civilization that has been here parallel to us since the beginning of time? What if it's ultra-terrestrials? Maybe some kind of materialized consciousness brought on by our own collective consciousness. What if it's interdimensional entities that are manifesting in the only way that they could in our lonely realm? And this is how we interpret it. Recently I heard one that was fascinating but just so devastatingly sad. What if some of these objects are drones, programmed for certain tasks, running on an infinite or a near-infinite power supply, and have no uh real purpose left and have now outlived the civilization that created them doomed to carry out the same mission long before us and long after us no matter what they appear to be something and if not i'm still having a goddamn blast driving back through the desert was absolutely surreal when the sun eventually began to set it really is like you're on another planet Just the biggest thanks to Roger Harvey and Roger Harvey and the High Lifers for the original music that really just fucking tied all this together, driving through the desert. Um, of course, my deepest, deepest thank you to Beth Ann for coming out with me to Area 51. Congratulations to Eric and Estelle. Uh, I want to thank The Chisel for the intro song and Pat Breyer for uh, his contribution to the podcast as well. Such another fucking awesome song. Um, I'm really excited to hear what you guys have to say about uh, this podcast, the kind of switch, not to a permanent format, but things that I'll be working on in the future. Any of your thoughts on this phenomena or thing, maybe anything I've gotten wrong, you can hit me at tom at futurefriday.net. Um, I really want to thank immensely the people who have worked on bringing all this information forward, like Luis Elizondo, Christopher Mellon, Leslie Keen, David Fravor, all of the podcast hosts like Ryan Sprague from Somewhere in the Skies and Micah Hanks. And just there's so many people there have been so incredibly influential uh, to the way that I think about all of this. And thank you for listening. This was just as fun as anything can be for me to make. Oh, and of course, thank you, Joe Godino. And thank you, Corey Sreesey. And thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye.
What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.